0: There's something I'm missing here and I want to bring it in to the story. When Brian and I, you know, separated ways and I took on civets on my own. um, There was, there was somebody who helped me through that phase and who I couldn't have done this without. Um, There's a good friend of mine who um, I met at the coffee shop who his name is Bob Oldfather, and he is just a, a very experienced business person, engineer. You know, just kind of one of those all-around guys that, that uh, can, can do it all. Uh, he was kind enough to allow me to move into his shop. He has a good, really big shop uh, on his property. He allowed me to move in there and spend the last two years going through the R&D phase of getting it up to where it is now. And was a big part of the engineering side of things. I'm not an engineer. I, I am not wired that way. Um, but uh, Bob was was that kind of arm for me, and and you know lent a hand when it came to the engineering side of developing um, different various parts of the roaster. And so his contribution has been um, invaluable to me and allowing me to have that space and also providing that input and that knowledge and the tools. This guy has more tools than you've ever seen in your life. I mean, he just has something for everything. And that's been kind of the amazing part of it is getting through this in a fairly small shop. I'm just so grateful for for what he has done uh, for Civets and for giving me me that opportunity. We're now in the process of moving to a fabricator who's also going to assemble for us in Portland. They have a lot of experience uh, in this this field, and I'm really looking forward to accessing their expertise and their knowledge to continue to improve how we build the roaster and how it functions.
1: Very cool, I mean, it, it is really important to just have those people that support you, uh, even if they weren't part of that original plan or that original thought. they sort of appear when you most need them.
0: Yes, this has all been self funded i'm you know I'm pretty deep on a personal level uh, financially. you know didn't have deep pockets to to invest in all of these these kind of r and d steps. And just having these people in my life and having access to these resources, again, through like the SBDC and Business Oregon, OMAP, I can't remember, forget OMAP, Oregon Manufacturing uh, Engineering, they have also been a big help uh, in, in, in getting it this far. And I, you know, I couldn't have done it without having access to those people trying to, to really get this done on, on a very small budget.
1: Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to a very special holiday bonus episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee people. We're in between seasons six and seven, but I recently had a great chat with Michael Barthmus. He's the CEO and the man behind Civets Roasting Machines in Hood River, Oregon. Civets is a name that has been around in coffee for more than half a century. The founder, Michael Civit's wrote a more than 700-page book about coffee processing technology in the early 1960s. And later, he started his own company designing and manufacturing fluid-bed coffee roasters inspired by his own frustrations with the efficiency and the effectiveness of the traditional drum roaster. In a civets roaster, the coffee beans aren't spun in a heated drum. Instead, a steady stream of forced heated air rotates the mass of beans in a cyclone. The heated air allows for the rapid and uniform transfer of heat to the beans and a greater level of control. At least that's what I learned on the Civets website. Unfortunately, Michael Civets passed away in 2012, and for a time the brand was in a state of flux, and I believe even went dormant for a moment, until a local coffee shop owner, today's guest, Michael Barthmus, decided to revitalize the brand and reconfigure the iconic roasters with some new designs and technology options. You can learn more about the history of Civets while you're listening today by visiting civets.com. You can go directly to that link from this podcast's show notes or detour through roastwestcoast.com where you'll find that link and so much more. To set the scene, I was chatting with Michael while a winter storm was raging outside my home in Southern California. On the other side of the video chat was Michael, a dapper-looking gentleman with a lovely-looking fireplace in the background. I was pretty envious of how cozy it appeared. And I was excited to see him, because I hadn't interviewed anyone in a while. But interviewing and recording is a skill like anything, and I was a little rusty. There was just a bit of technical difficulty, and the first two minutes of our chat are lost in the ether of the internet. I'm going to blame that storm. So, we're going to jump into this conversation, as Michael is talking about his first coffee experiences. Wherever you are, settle in, I hope you're staying warm, and you have a steaming hot mug of coffee to enjoy as you listen to this conversation with entrepreneur and the CEO of Civets Roasting Machines, Michael Barthmis, on the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast.
0: There was no Starbucks and. You know, we were more likely to grab a jolt cola if you had to do an all-nighter than you were to to drink a pot of coffee. So I I didn't really grow up with it per se. But then I was living over in Germany for all of the 90s, and there's just a strong Italian influence in most of Germany, most of Europe. Uh, you know, Italian cafes are all over the place, and you know, drinking lattes and cappuccinos and espresso has been a thing, as a part, been a part of European culture uh, for a bit longer than I would say than than in the U.S. So that was kind of how I started getting into coffee. I had no idea that it was going to become my my profession.
1: Well, you were in Germany working for an auto company. What brought you back? Uh, from Germany to the United States, or what brought you to the United States. In particular, how did you end up owning a coffee shop in Hood River, Oregon?
0: Well, I I worked for Mercedes-Benz in their uh, world headquarters, which is in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, I did that for about almost 12 years. I'm part German. My parents are both originally German. I grew up speaking German. So I was kind of having an identity crisis after 10 years in Germany Um, And so I decided to take a year off uh, and travel for a year in the US. I bought an RV and just traveled around. uh, And, you know, I wanted to have some time and see all the national parks and get out. But also in the back of my mind, I was looking for a place to settle down. I kind of knew I wanted to be in a smaller community, a smaller town. I didn't want to live in a big city. I thought that was just long-term, it just wasn't healthy. And so I uh, took that year off, traveled for a year. In that year, found Hood River, totally randomly came out here to see a a concert. And that was kind of the seed that was planted. Um, but I didn't know what I was going to do here. And I actually went back to Mercedes, but this time I stayed here in the U.S. and worked for the Mercedes-Benz, uh, USA headquarters, and I was in product management there for the Maybach, which was a totally different thing, and came out here on vacation two years in, found out that this coffee shop in, in Hood River was for sale, and just grabbed the opportunity and jumped on it. I knew if I was going to wait for the perfect thing to come along, it wasn't going to, uh, and I just felt like I could take the challenge on and make it happen.
1: That's really interesting to me that you bought a coffee shop that was in existence, uh, and I believe is still in existence, even though you're no longer the owner. Yes. How did you assimilate into that community, small communities in particular? I grew up in a small community, are very local, and they know everybody, and the coffee shop is a hub of that, that gossip, and that. You know, it's like the hardware store. It's like a place where people meet and, and talk. How long did it take before you felt like, you know what, I'm part of this Hood River community? Well,
0: the old time residents of Hood River will, will never say, let you say that you're <laughs> local. But I thought, you know, if you're going to move into a new community like this, that was a great way to meet people and to, you know, gain exposure to so many different facets of the town and the people of the town. So I really couldn't think of a better way to get to know people very quickly. There's a very tight-knit uh, small business community in downtown Hood River, and they embraced me and, and took me in, and it was just a great environment to have this experience that I, that I was looking for. I was kind of getting out of the, the, the rat race, the hustle and bustle of big city life, and doing something... I wanted to do for myself in a different environment in that type of community.
1: When you bought that coffee shop, did you have any coffee experience before that, making drinks, serving customers, obviously through Mercedes, but I mean, what was your level of expertise? I like you're shaking your head there. <laughs> yeah,
0: I didn't I didn't have any. I could make a pretty mean cappuccino in my RV. <laughs> um you know, I had one of those little frothing uh, milk frothers and I was had my little stovetop espresso maker and so that was always fun to like you know blow people's minds that they were getting this cappuccino in a in a in an, R, in an RV park. So that was really the only you know I didn't really have that exposure to it other than being a you know I'm a customer service oriented person, i traveled a lot, I've tried a lot of coffees and restaurants and I just I thought I had a good feeling for what customer service was about and that in the end, that's really what ties it all together. That was kind of what I focused on. You know, I was very good at working in the business and not on the business, <laughs> which was a good thing in the first couple of years because it really had to gain some traction first. I loved being in the store. I loved making coffee. I probably made more drinks in those 10 years than anybody else that worked there. Um, I just loved it.
1: You did work there for, or you did own that property, uh, I believe. dopio Cafe, is that am I pronouncing that right?
0: Yes, dopio Yes,
1: Doppio for um, for a long time. At what point did you become aware of of Civit's uh, machine roasters, which is what you're doing now?
0: Yeah, so for the longest time, I wasn't even really aware of the Civit's brand. But it was the coffee that I was serving in that cafe. So when I bought it, it had been in operation for six months and there was a lot of fixing to do and a lot of things to to, to work on in order to uh, make the numbers work a little better. But one of the things that was working really well and that was, you know, the very most consistent thing in there was the coffee. And so... I stayed with that coffee provider, and uh, Brian Graves uh, is the gentleman who owns Pacific Rim Coffee. Ended up becoming a good friend of mine, and I that was the coffee we sold there. So, so my experience with civets, more than anything, is you know a, on a daily face to face basis of people telling me how amazing the coffee was and how, what a good experience they had. So I had a a a tight relationship with civets before I even really knew about it. And I was so focused on all these other things uh in the cafe of figuring out the food and figuring out personnel and you know how it is just wearing many different hats as as a cafe owner but the coffee was the one thing that was consistent and good and I I didn't even know what it what it meant for a shop to get beans that they would have to send back to their to their you know producer we just had this very consistent great quality of coffee that i never um had any intention of changing in that time that i owned it
1: and that's just to clarify then so they were roasting and producing and, and wholesaling their own coffee as well as producing a coffee roasting machine they were building their own machines is that is that what i'm understanding correctly
0: so sivitz michael sivitz um they were was building Coffee Roasters in Corvallis, Oregon, up until 2012. He passed away in 2012, and the brand went dormant for a couple years. And then the gentleman that I was getting my coffee from, Brian, stayed in touch with the Civitz family, and he's the one who ended up acquiring the brand from them and you know bringing it back to Hood River. And I joined forces with him in 2019 to get to, to 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 start and to kind of get it off the ground again. And so he's the one who originally was able to uh connect with the family and and acquire. There's no patents left. There was no patent on anything. The patent that Michael Sivitz had gotten was back from 1976. And so it was you know, it had run out in like 1998 or something. So there were, there were no patents. So it was really just about the brand and about the Civit's name and the technical drawings and all of the, the things that we got that showed us how the roasters were built.
1: So, and this is where things get really interesting to me. You took on a, a brand name that existed that people in Oregon, certainly, and people that were using those roasters were were aware of you are coming not necessarily from a if you're coming from a cafe or a coffee experience and from mercedes you have some product experience but you are going to start recreating a roaster that is your own building a new coffee roaster that is your own but also with that influence of the civets brand and civets name yeah, i'm hoping you could explain to me real quick what it is Civitz is doing now, what your company is doing now, and real quick is a terrible way to ask you to do that because I'm sure it's hard mm-hmm. to break down into a short thing. But what is the product that you're that you're building that you're out there pitching now? And how did you go from working with Brian to acquire this name and to get involved in it to having a product that you were offering the world?
0: I knew that be because of the reputation and because of the amount of roasters that were out there all around the world, you know, roasting 10, 20, 30 years um, after they had been put into into use, I knew that there was, you know, something that was very special about that and just having this kind of dependability and reliability in order to have the consistency is like the holy grail of 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 any of any roaster is being able to to do that and so i I knew that there was something you know that was a very solid core and a very solid foundation but i also knew that there were some things that can be improved upon a lot on the mechanical side of things and the way that the doors and shoots opened and you know there's a number of things that that could have been that we improved on as far as the ergonomics and how the how the machine operates goes that was what i would say um was the first part of it is is improving the ergonomics and the design i mean people are a lot more into design now than they were in 1978 you know it was kind of more of an industrial machine that was in a in a coffee factory whereas even you know coffee roasting has taken on a, bit, a, bit, a little bit more of a of a romantic kind of approach where people want to see the coffee they want to know that their coffee is being roasted right then right there in the, on the property so you know we knew that improving the ergonomics and the the design was going to be you know the key to one of one of the keys to bringing the roaster into the 21st century so when i was working with brian those were the things kind of we, that we were focusing on. The next stage was where I saw the real potential of fluid bed roasting, and that's in the world of automation. Most of the heating of the beans in a fluid bed roaster is, is convective uh, and not conductive. And so there are quite a few advantages to heating the beans that way. There's the air roaster, the general air roaster. We have the drum roasting world and the air roasting world. Michael Sivitz was the first one to enter into this world. He applied something he learned in another uh, application to coffee beans and kind of started this this air air revolution, you know, kind of pushing on the simplicity of the design, the lack of, of maintenance. It's the, It's just a very easy roaster to to maintain on and to and to repair and so these were all the things that were kind of pushing it to the forefront when loring introduced their roasters and this is not a fluid bed roaster what loring and imf are doing is this recirculation roaster so it's uh, again using mostly convective heat but the beans are being agitated by the paddles Whereas in a fluid bed roaster, there's a steady stream of air blowing in through the bottom of the roast chamber that is both agitating and heating bean, the beans at the same time. So there are some, you know, differences within the recirculating roaster and the fluid bed roaster that will will, will set them apart from each other. But that's kind of the main difference within, within the, the air roasters.
1: How long was it from the time that you started working on this to the time that you had a product that you felt, this looks the way I want, it operates the way that I want, or at least as close to it as I am, I am before I put it out for people to judge and tell me if I succeeded?
0: Yeah, well, we kind of, you know, we, we presented the roaster for the first time at the SCA and we had a booth at the SCA show in Boston in April. And that was kind of the first time that we were able to present this newer design, this this improved ergonomics, um, and show some of the automation side of what we were doing. Uh, you know, we were having able to have our touch screen there, and the PLC and was was on the back of the roaster, and so we were able to at least kind of show what we were doing. But since then has been kind of this focus on the automation side of things and getting it dialed in to where we're on the one side where we're, we're uh, allowing the user to preset recipes, you know, where you're setting like 10 step profile, um, where you set the recipe. And that takes place within our, within our own PLC and within our own community there. Uh, and then we also wanted to make access to our gas controls available to third-party software. So now we can connect to Artisan and we can connect to Cropster and we're able to control the gas on our burner with that setup.
1: Sure. And those are coffee roasting softwares that are used to, one, track what you're doing, but also to control the different variables that people are, that roasters are using when they're roasting their coffee.
0: Yes. Artisan is used, I would say, more for, you know, tracking your roasts, the actual roasting process itself. Cropster is more of like an all around, you know, business model that roasteries use, you know, bigger uh, production roasters use to run their whole operation where it's tracking their green bean inventory. And, you know, they can put all their cupping notes and everything can kind of exist in one ecosystem that also allows them then to, to control our, you know, our roaster with that, with that software.
1: How has this experience of, I mean, you're essentially creating, you're, you're designing a product and now you're manufacturing it. And I believe you're manufacturing it in Oregon. That just seems so overwhelming to me for one, but how does this compare to you know, that 10 years running the cafe where every day is its own kind of entity. Obviously, there's a bigger picture, but you're dealing with problems kind of immediately, you know, in the moment and dealing with customers in the moment. And here you're dealing on, you're working with this long-term kind of vision for what this roaster is going to be. And I assume as you're developing, meeting potential clients, taking orders that may be getting their roaster six months from now. I mean, how has that transition been for you personally?
0: It's been, I mean, it's been tough. I I underestimated a lot of those challenges, but I did make this conscious kind of effort to get off of what I call the front line, which is retail. If you're in a coffee shop environment, seven days a week, five in the morning till seven at night, you know, there's a certain grind and repetitiveness to that that will wear you down over time. And that's what I call working the front line. So, this is an opportunity to, um, to tape, take a step back from that kind of the, what I call the pickaxes and shovels uh, approach, which during the gold rush, the people who really struck it rich were the people selling pickaxes and shovels and not the people panning for gold. So once you've figured out how to pan for gold, you should move on and uh, be a, a provider of those things or the knowledge to do those things. And so that was kind of my, my intention was, was hopefully taking on something that would get me off the front line. Uh, and so this was that. Uh, the part that I underestimated is how linear the development and the R&D is and the fact that you, you can't leapfrog to other steps. Everything has to happen step after step after step. You know, you can't figure out your modulation until you figured out which gas valve works the best with this burner. And you can't figure out your your profiling until you've figured out how to dial that roaster, you know, that burner range incorrectly. So all these things happen in a very linear fashion um that have made it frustrating and um but challenging at the same time. And I and I can't imagine how much more difficult that would have been trying to work with an overseas manufacturing end of things. Um, having everything here in the U.S. and having everything pretty much mostly in Oregon or Washington, most of our vendors, has just made it more n- manageable to to work our way through this R&D phase that we're, we're kind of still in, but coming out of now.
1: That's really interesting um, that it's actually easier. I think one reason... People assume to send manufacturing overseas is, is pricing, but the value that you're getting in return for having access to all of your vendors locally is proving to be more beneficial, I'm assuming.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And then I've also, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, support out there for businesses that are trying to keep things in Oregon or in the US. So one of my great discoveries has been the relationships I've established with business Oregon and with the small business development center um, who have provided numerous grants and, and opportunities uh, to, to help get me through this phase. They understand kind of the struggles and the, and the difficulty of getting something like this off the ground and have been just fantastic to to work with, and and provide me more resources, and provide me with uh, connections to the people that were able to get us to the next step.
1: I think that's an important just lesson or a reminder, even for myself. As you are saying, and I am thinking about about it selfishly, but you don't always have to do everything alone, uh, especially when you are you are building something new that will hopefully uplift your community and the business community as well. You come from an entrepreneurial family or you're, you're married into an entrepreneurial family. I believe your wife owns a business as well. How do you guys uh, work together, inspire each other? or What kind of push and pull is there from having more than one person who is pursuing this effort, which can be challenging individually, but certainly when you're a team, there's different rules
0: yeah um, and also we have a seven year old so that kind of um, adds even more. Uh, my wife Christine has has been a huge influence on me and has been kind of my backbone and and, and and getting me through these these first couple years of getting this off the ground and you know having kind of that that business uh, mindset, has really helped me, you know, to, to have somebody to bounce all these ideas off of and she has helped very much form how this company has evolved. You know, we were for a while there, she had the jewelry store and I had the the coffee shop Two retail operations was a bit much. Uh, That was just, you know, relentless, uh, especially with mine being the seven days a week one, you know, it never, it never let up. So having one retail operation now uh, and having one kind of this manufacturing company just seems to be working well as far as, you know, separating those things and being still being able to help each other out.
1: Sure. Uh, and it's just the logistics of, of, of life. For anyone listening, uh, I know we have a lot of listeners who are either in the industry or aspiring to be. That seven days a week thing you've mentioned a couple of times, that's something I'm familiar with. It really is more, It it almost feels like more than seven days a week because when you're not at work, you're still at work and your, your mind is still working on it when you're taking your kids to school or when you're getting groceries, there's never really a break and being the face of the community. I'm soapboxing a little bit now, uh, a face in the community, people will recognize you and say hello and you have to be on, you know, in a way you don't have to be at home. Uh, or if you're behind a desk somewhere which is just a different challenge. What's something that you've learned since kind of taking over this company that has surprised you or is kind of a lesson that you're going to be taking with you as you're moving forward?
0: I've had we've had a lot of curveballs thrown at us. I like one of the things that I that I really well, we've said a lot and that I like like to kind of use you don't know what you don't know. And so in this kind of phase where we've been, you know, figuring things out and co- constantly going into, into new territories, it's amazing what you find out, what was, what's out there, what's available that you didn't even know about, that you really, it really, really uh, pays off to do the research and to talk to as many different people as you can and to get as many different opinions as you can, because there's you just don't know what you don't know you don't know and the only way you'll find out is if you if you go seek out the information and so i've i've just had a really good community of of uh, talented people who i've been able to go to to kind of collaborate and pull all this t- together so that's kind of one a big one you don't know what you don't know and then the other thing that i really learned trust but verify <laughs> i can't tell you how many times we trusted that a part that we got was 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 the right one, and um, we would, you know, figure out way later that what we assumed was the right thing was not. We spent a couple of weeks going down a rabbit hole uh, when one of our thermocouples was the, the gentleman who set it up said is it definitely set up to be a J type thermocouple, and we just couldn't get it to work, and the readings were all over the place. And finally, after weeks and weeks, someone. You know, made us go in and, and and check it with you know stick stick the thermocouple in in a cup of boiling water and it should read two twelve and it wasn't. and so we knew that something else was off. and then we figured out it had been programmed for a K-type thermocouple and not a J-type thermocouple. So <laughs> if we'd have verified that and not just trusted it, you know we would have saved ourselves a lot of work and a lot of uh, banging our heads up against the wall trying to figure out why these readings were all over the place.
1: Sure. I think my dad told me that as a joke 20 years ago, 40 years ago about, you know, when you hire someone to come and fix your tractor or your washing machine or whatever, and they, you know, they come in and they bang around and it's still broken. Someone else comes, they bang around, it's still broken. And finally you, you hire the person who's charging 10 times as much and they walk up and they do one little thing and it's fixed. You're not paying them for fixing it. You're paying them because they knew how to fix it that's right, and, uh, or how to fix something. And so that's kind of what you're learning yeah what is next uh for civets and actually before before you answer that, who is the client for civets who is the the customer that is going to be buying these? is it um, I sh- I'm not even going to presume i 'll just let you answer that question who's the customer and then what do you see as kind of the next phase of of what you're doing
0: yeah, I think we're kind of from at least you know our experience up to now with the the roasters we've sold, our biggest source. Has been smaller air roasters, so they're coming from a coffee crafter's artisan or an ash roaster, or you know one of these five, ten pound air roasters, and they make fantastic coffees. Uh, they they bene- have a lot of the benefits, you know. Is they're 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 what's called the spouting fluid bed roaster for the most part. Um, so they're they're open air; they're not in a contained environment, but they make fantastic coffees and there's people have been very successful with them and when they outgrow that machine you know when they're working that thing 12 hours a day 6 days a week and they have all the spare parts already ready to go you know that's that's when they come to us and they're looking to to increase their capacity increase their daily uh, amount that they can roast but they still want to stay with air roasting they understand And want to continue to offer the benefits of air roasting, but on a bigger scale.
1: I would imagine as a a roaster, it's not something I had thought about, but committing to a roaster roasting machine is is almost like a partnership in and of itself because that's the style you're learning on, that's the equipment you're learning on. So you to just say, oh well, I'm going to buy a new machine that's not an air uh, roaster. It's you know. Drum roaster or something—it's going to be different somehow. Wouldn't just be as simple as plugging in a new machine and going to work. You'd be starting all over.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, even even between the smaller air roaster and and a bigger air roaster, there's still a learning curve there to you know make that make that leap. But it's not nearly as complex it would be to switch to a drum roaster from from one of these smaller smaller air roasters.
1: Sure, and I had interrupted you. Uh, my question had been. What's next? You know, what's the next phase for civets?
0: Well, so I was going to say, just the second group that we want to see the growth in is is the, uh, drum roasters. Convert people that are converting from from drum to an air roaster. You know, I think Loring's done a great job of of increasing kind of the visibility and the understanding of what air roasting can be. So I think you know being able to convert. Some drum roasters is gonna be a big part of our of our next of our next push going forward yeah, I think there's there's definitely some benefits and advantages that are coming to light more and more, and hoping that that we can be a part of that trend. so what's next for civics um you were asking about that you know there's a couple of things that we still need to improve on that we want to um focus on, I think. First and foremost, we are in a climate crisis. We are uh, definitely facing unprecedented changes to our environment, and our um, our part in that as a as a large scale roaster is not insignificant. And I'm I'm taking that on as a challenge to become more environmentally sustainable. We're going to start. Im, you know, implementing or working with a heat exchanger, so we're bringing some of the heat back into the roaster. We're working with Vortex to offer this this wet scrubber that can help you know your your carbon footprint and and the amount of emissions that you're letting into the air without burning additional fuel. This is the great thing about the Vortex is that you're not having to run an afterburner. Some afterburners can use as much or as much as three times three to four times what the actual roasters is using so making a few uh, changes and and trying to become more efficient uh we're going to try to develop a smaller roaster where mike civets built roasters anything between 500 grams and and two baggers so he, he covered that whole range so we want to offer a five to 10 pound roaster, something in that range, that will be an electric roaster. And then we want to move up into the larger roasters. Uh, probably the most requests I've had were, are for the half bag roaster. What we're doing is the quarter bag. It's a 15 kilo roaster. And there has been a lot of demand in the 30 kilo size. So I think that's the size that we will kind of move, move up towards. Developing all of these Additions with a better environmental stewardship in mind. I think we need we need to do better than that. There's a lot more technology out there that's going to help us. You know, even now, like our, our burners, it's a it's a modulating burner now. That was one of the main changes that we made is that we we can fluctuate the fan speed and we can uh, modulate the gas, and so it's already now become much more efficient because once we're at our once the roaster is hot and 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 in motion the burner percentage will come down quite a bit and it's just operating at at a, at a more efficient level whereas it used to be the gas was on 100% and the fan was on 100% and those were those were your two options there and so we're already doing making some some uh, strides with this with the, with the way that we're roasting now with this modulating gas and this variable fan speed, but we will continue to work in that direction and make it a more environmentally sustainable product.
1: Well, I commend you for taking on that, that challenge, kind of the push and pull of trying to create something that you're going to put out into the world when there are direct challenges to your, to values or your beliefs about uh, sustainability and climate change, and and you're trying to put something out that will be better in the long run, but in the short term, you're still creating something. You know, it's the Patagonia problem. Yes, where you're building and growing, uh, which in is inherently wasteful, but at the same time, you're trying to create a better future. Uh, very challenging. So, I wish you the best, uh, truly, uh, on that. Before we go, you obviously enjoy coffee. Um, you're a coffee drinker. If you are driving uh, down the road, you maybe you pass Multoma, uh, Multoma Falls and uh, you see a random coffee cart on the side of the road, what are you ordering? What are you going to drink uh, for yourself?
0: Ah, uh, Americanos. I'm an Americano guy. That's kind of what we, my wife and I drink here at the house. We wake up in the morning uh, and I have a nice little espresso machine. That was my going away gift from Dopio, and my incentive to give that up. <laughs> And yeah, I, I, I do enjoy a latte or a, or a cappuccino, you know, on the weekend or later in the day, perhaps. But for the most part, I'm 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 drinking americanos, which is a funny side story. Do you know the story of why they're called americanos?
1: I think I do, but I, I'm I'm open to hearing it again.
0: Yeah, maybe you can uh, verify that this is correct. Um, but uh, the GIs that were stationed over in Italy uh, during World War II were being given espresso and they thought that that was way too strong and they just wanted coffee. And so they were like, well, let's just water it down for you and we'll just add a shot to a bunch of hot water and then you can drink it like your coffee. And that's where the name the Americano came from.
1: That's what I have I have heard, but I've also heard, uh, as an extension of that, that there are arguments about whether the hot water goes in the cup first or the espresso goes in the cup first, and people are passionate and particular. I know I asked a little bit before, but just to double-check, anything that I missed today that you wanted to share?
0: Probably the funnest thing, um, I'll, I'll say two things. The, the, the funnest thing that has come out of this is... Um, this roaster does an amazing job with nuts. So, I've been roasting hazelnuts and cashews on this roaster that have found huge fans. And <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about or wondering, you know, how I can turn that into kind of a, a, a side business. And of course, focusing more on selling the roasters to the nut growers. You know, we have a pretty big hazelnut growing community in in Oregon. It's the second largest hazelnut producing area in the world after Turkey. That's been really fun to just, um, you know, roast nuts on this thing that have just been been mind-blowingly good without any salt or sugar or anything. You just roast them in there and it just brings them to life in, in, in a really good way. The other thing I'd like to share is what's coming up for us for the SCA Expo that's going to be in Portland in April. We are going to have a booth there again. We'll have a 10 by 20 booth that we'll be displaying at. We'll have a roaster there for that. And then we're also planning an offsite event that will be a few blocks, hopefully, from the convention center where we're going to be able to roast and do a demo on, an, on one of our roasters that's actually hooked up and, and, and roasting coffee. You know, we can't really see that in, in the convention center. You're not able to roast in there. And so um, I'm really excited to be, um, hopefully we're partnering with Cropster and with Vortex to, to arrange this event at a, at a roasting co-op. Um, and that's going to be our first opportunity to really get out and, and have people have the, the face-to-face contact to the roaster, watch it in operation, try the coffees that are, that are coming out of it, watch how the automation you know, does the work f- for them, just kind of having that ability to demonstrate that is something I'm really looking forward to and, and was probably one of the hardest parts about getting through COVID uh, is not being able to demo the machine and not being able to show people, um, you know, come to my shop, let's look at it. No, <laughs> thank you. Uh, That's, you know, one of the tougher parts of, of going through it um, going through COVID and while start trying to, to start a manufacturing company was not being able to bring people in but having that opportunity at the expo is something I'm really looking forward to. And I hope that, uh, the people, uh, in the Northwest especially are going to come out to, to Portland and come by and see us.
1: Very cool. Um, I believe that I will be there. So maybe I'll get a chance oh, to go to that demo. Very exciting.
0: It's great. It's great to meet you.
1: And I'll keep an eye out for uh Barthmas nuts in the future. And, yes. uh, Michael, I just, I really appreciate, one, that you're taking on this challenge, especially taking on a manufacturing challenge in the United States, which obviously there's been a push for in the last couple of years, but you're actually doing it. And uh, two, just for taking time to chat with us uh, about what you're doing.
0: It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time and giving me the opportunity to, to present the new Civets.
1: Okay, to recap, Hood River, Oregon is quite magical. Think good coffee and beer, shout out to Freem Brewing Company, and windsurfing and waterfalls. If you happen to find yourself in the Pacific Northwest, it is worth the detour. Michael got into coffee while in Germany in the 1990s, but at the time there wasn't any reason to believe that coffee was in his career future. Fast forward a bit and he buys a young coffee shop in Hood River. That coffee shop, Dopio, still exists. He ran that business for years, but in looking for an opportunity to step back from the day-to-day of retail, which I can confirm is relentless, he found a new home with Civet's Roasting Machines. It speaks to the concept of right place, right time. If Michael hadn't bought a coffee shop that already had a relationship with the Civet's family, who knows where he'd be now? Where he is, is as the head of Civet's Roasting Machines which domestically manufactures the SRM15 fluid bed roaster, and that's pretty cool. It's been updated from the original designs, but it is based on the original Civets roasters. Next up for the company is to take on the challenge of becoming more environmentally sustainable, and then applying that not only to their company, but to their product offerings. They're also looking into the development of a larger 30-kilogram coffee roaster, which is one of the biggest requests from their customers. I'll share more about Civets roasting machines and some not from the show coffee content in this week's Roast West Coast newsletter, which, if you don't already subscribe to, can be found on roastwestcoast.com. And if you're an aspiring or established roaster looking to learn more about fluid bed roasters or how to acquire the Civets SRM 15, head to civets.com. That's S I V E T Z.com. Again, you can find that link and all of these links in the podcast notes. On to some closing business. I want to thank Barista Magazine for including Roast West Coast and the soon-to-drop new podcast, Coffee Smarter, in their top four list of coffee podcasts you should be listening to. I'm personally stoked to be included in that list, along with the Cat and Cloud podcast, which is one I love as well. I'll share the link to the article on roastwestcoast.com. And you should know that we've already started recording the new show, Coffee Smarter, which only exists because listeners like you were asking for a podcast that focused specifically on brewing a better cup of coffee and having a better coffee experience at home. The first episode of the Coffee Smarter podcast will be released Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. But you can follow the show on Spotify now. Search for Coffee Smarter and hit the follow button so you don't miss it in your feed. A second bonus episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee podcast featuring Nettie Taylor of RayGen Coffee in Bandon, Oregon, will be released on Thursday this week, so you'll definitely have new content to listen to while getting packed for the holidays. Before I go today, I have a few coffee industry partners who I depend on for expertise and a bit of financial support. I've been lucky that I only have to partner with brands I really believe in, and I feel good telling you to support. You'll find links to these partners in the show notes. In each newsletter post, and even on the front page of roastwestcoast.com. So, a shout-out and a big thank-you to Café La Moster Coffee Company, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, Coffee Cycle Roasting, Ignite Coffee Company, Marea Coffee, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, Zumbar Coffee & Tea, and Ascend Coffee Roasters. A special shout-out to Alden Hazuri, who recently left Café La to turn his focus onto his own roastery, Crossings Coffee. And thank you to everyone else for listening and supporting this show. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this episode has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity to make it through the day. Always tip your baristas and be sure to drink good coffee. I'm Ryan Wolt, and my neighbor is building something outside, so if you hear him in the background, my bad. Did you know that this podcast is a listener and reader-supported creative effort? It's true. There are a bunch of crazy, cool people who subscribe to the paid version of the newsletter at roastwestcoast.com. If you've been enjoying this episode or the 125 or so that came before it, please consider subscribing. The podcast is always free. But damn if I don't appreciate the support that comes every time a new name shows up on that subscriber roll. Thank you.